Welcome everybody to another episode of Resonate Radio episode 16. This is a Canna Book Club episode. It is the phytochemical diversity of commercial cannabis in the United States. This paper is a little bit different. This is a review paper. It has not been certified yet by peer review. It's still a preprint. Nevertheless, a very interesting paper, and we are extremely excited to break that down for you. This paper is a little bit thick. There are quite a few technical terms, and I recommend to everybody to check out the introduction here that is written for this episode. Take a look at the link for this article and follow it along. There are quite a few figures, and I think it's important for everybody to move through them. So link will be there for you. If you have any questions about the paper, please contact us on Instagram at Team Resonate. We appreciate the follows and the downloads. Let's keep it on going, folks. It's extremely fun to put these together for everybody. Uh, I've been a little bit busy uh, for this month, uh, finishing my education for horticulture. So thank you for bearing with us. But now the episodes come fast and furious. Here's part one of the Canna Book Club's Phytochemical Diversity of Commercial Cannabis in the United States. I hope you enjoy. We'll see you all soon. Welcome, everyone, to another weekly episode of the Resonate Radio Canna Book Club. We're coming to you from all over the globe, mostly America. <laughs> My name is Casey Albron. I live in Humboldt County. I have a bachelor's degree in environmental biology, discovered Resonate Radio, and found out that these cool people really like cannabis science, and I really wanted to continue my exploration in like research and plant science. I thought getting us together every week, reading a new research article together and dissecting it live would be cool. And here we are several weeks in. We've got a lot of episodes recorded. Um, I believe uh, Corey and Molly, y'all are posting them on YouTube and or... Yes, they're on YouTube and they will be on the podcast as well. Awesome. Yeah, so let's, I guess, continue introducing ourselves and then we could talk about what's a little different this week. This is Molly. <laughs> My name is Molly Russell. Um, I am here in Canada on the West Coast. I am a medical patient and uh, cannabis has been a pretty big part of my life. I am a grower as well. So the cultivation of the science papers is quite interesting to me. Um, I don't have a scientific background. However, the more we're doing this, the more I'm realizing that, you know, anyone can really um, value to this as well. And uh, Dr. Anna, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I'll let, I'll let Corey go first, because then I can introduce myself and tell you what's different about this paper. Hello, everybody. It's me, Corey. I am alive and well. It's uh, I am principal managing partner uh, with my lovely wife, Molly, large scale cannabis cultivation. I am excited to go through another paper again. It's wonderful to see you, Casey, Dr. Anibis, Johnny, Sam, Jameson. What's going on, brother? And Christopher down in the audience. Thank you so much for coming through to the Cannabis Club. We are live on YouTube and Twitch. I'm really excited to talk about this one today. There are a lot of figures uh, and especially going in through materials and methods. 
kind of an interesting little spiel. So without further ado, Dr. Anibus, go right on ahead. Thank you, Corey. Uh, yeah, so I'm a Dr. Anibus. Uh, my regular name is Anna Schwabe. I have a PhD in cannabis science. I, my dissertation work was focused on looking at variation in cannabis um, with a background sort of uh, backbone in genetic work. I also have a bachelor's degree in cellular and molecular biology and a master's degree in population genetics. So yeah, I love coming on here on Mondays and talking cannabis science with these folks. And this week, the paper that we are looking at is one that my friend Danielle Vergara is a author on and Nick Jacomes, Jacomis, I'm not sure how you say his last name, but he is the principal scientist for Leafly, which is like one of the biggest databases of strains and information, um, at least here in the US, but I think it's available everywhere. So this paper is super cool. What's different about this paper is that it is a preprint. Now a preprint means that it hasn't yet gone through the peer review process. The peer review process is like the gold standard for science that is published. So what that means is that the paper that you write, you send it to a journal, they send it to a, a collection of your peers, usually about three to four people that are have expertise in whatever research you did and they will review it, they will give you feedback, they will give you comments, they will tell you what they do like about it, what they don't like about it, what they need you to change or do differently. Um, and it's a very intense process. But uh, recently, in the last few years or so, there have been a couple of uh, sites that you can submit your research to, um, and it goes up almost as a preview of what's to come. So it's pre-peer review. So this is from BioArchive. Um, there's also a medical one, which a lot of the COVID studies are going up on before they get uh, accepted for publication. Um, and that sounds kind of hokey or whatever, maybe, to some people who are like, oh, peer review, it needs to be peer reviewed. However, the really cool thing about this, about these uh, preprints, is that number one, you can get your science out there before anybody else has a chance to scoop you. When you go through the peer review process, unfortunately, sometimes, and this happens more often than it should, is that you submit your journal for peer review and somebody who is a reviewer takes your data or whatever and, and or, or turns you down for, for um, publication because they're doing the same research and they want to get theirs out there first. So if you put it up on, on a preprint server, that shows that you did the research, you did it first. And also, the, the second thing that's really cool about this is that anybody can read this and anybody can be a peer reviewer. So a lot of us scientists actually go on these, um, on these preprint servers and we can comment on, like I can go on here and I can comment and say, you know, I love what you've done, but you know, this analysis right here, um, it doesn't work like that, or you should have done these statistics, or whatever the case may be. So instead of just getting three or four reviewers, you get a whole community of peer reviewers that can give you feedback prior to actually submitting it for the, um, the final peer review that you're looking to get. So you can kind of get like a lot of community feedback uh, from your peers just by putting them on a preprint server. 
So anyway, so that's what's different about this. It hasn't yet gone through the peer review process. I do believe that they have submitted it to a journal. I'm just not sure which journal they have submitted to. I could ask Daniela, but I didn't. I forgot. Um, so yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm Anna, um, and I'm excited to get into this paper. And with that, I'm complete. I'm going to send it over to Casey to go through the abstract. Thanks, everyone. Great introductions and great explanation of this type of paper. Uh, so yeah, we like to start each episode with, you know, the abstract. The abstract is the kind of summary of what was done and what was found. This one is no different. Let's go. Abstract. Well, let's see. The title of the paper also is The Phytochemical Diversity of Commercial Cannabis in the United States. This paper's um, out of both Washington and Colorado, Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology in Boulder. And the abstract, the legal status of cannabis is changing, fueling and fueling an increased diversity of cannabis-derived products. Because cannabis contains dozens of chemical compounds with potential psychoactive or medicinal effects, understanding its phytochemical diversity is crucial. The legal cannabis industry heavily markets products to consumers based on widely used labeling systems purported to predict the effects of different cannabis quote-unquote strains. We analyzed the cannabinoid and terpene content of tens of thousands of commercial cannabis samples across six U.S. states, finding distinct chemical phenotypes, aka chemotypes, which, which are reliably present. After careful descriptive analysis of the phytochemical diversity and comparison to the commercial labels commonly attached to cannabis samples, we show that commercial labels do not consistently align with the observed chemical diversity. However, certain labels are statistically overrepresented for specific chemotypes. These results have important implications for the classification of commercial cannabis, the design of animal and human research, and the regulation of legal cannabis marketing. So, I mean, one thing that I'm stoked about is that we finally have a paper that has thousands of samples. So we have a good sample size this time. Um, yeah, so, oh, also, this paper is kind of weird. Corey maybe we can still keep like methods are at the end on this one but maybe we can still go in that usual order molly would you love to take it away with the introduction so again introductions are very similar in a lot of these papers uh but uh, this one actually goes pretty in depth on a couple of things um as we know cannabis sativa is a flowering plant from the family kind of it's one of the oldest domesticated plants, and it has been used by humans for over 10,000 years, and uh, it has been done around the globe as well. Um, it's been used for commercial and medicinal purposes. Um, the genus is considered to have a single species, which is cannabis sativa, and that's inclusive of all of its forms uh, of hemp or marijuana with a high genomic and phenotypic variation across multiple lineages. The marijuana-type lineages are the ones that we use for human consumption, consumption, and the hemp lineages are the ones that are for the industrial purposes uh, for the fiber or oil extraction. Uh, the human consumption is uh, typically uh, 
you know, including the female flowers that are grown, harvested, and processed into what we commonly call uh, marijuana weed flower and other informal names uh, the new laws are leading to decriminalization and legalization and um, they're given a rise to a global industry at this point and uh, it has innovated across genetics cultivation extraction distribution and compliance to keep pace with the demands of consumers and regulators and uh, beyond the regular flowers we also have oils confections beverages topical suppositories and many other delivery mechanisms um, um, also, in this paper, um, there have two different ways that they like mention cannabis, uh, and cannabis with a capital C is in the reference to the plant, um, and you know the regular cannabis is a term for everything that encompasses uh, processed cannabis in all of its forms, or the reference to the cannabis industry in general. Um, Cannabis is known for the production of secondary metabolites, including the cannabinoids and terpenes. Uh, cannabinoids are a class of compounds that interact with the endocannabinoid system, and many of them have medicinal or psychoactive properties. Uh, two of the most abundant cannabinoids are THCA and CBDA, which are converted to neutral forms, uh, which is THC and CBD, once they're heated. Um, beyond THC and CBD, there are various minor cannabinoids typically present at a much lower levels that includes uh, cbga cbca cbn thcva cbg and thcv and uh, due to their low abundance uh, they're generally being less well studied than thc and cbd although they display a range of interest in pharmacological properties with potential medicinal value as well the cannabinoid levels have been used uh, both for setting legal definitions for different categories of products and for chemotaxonomic purposes to classify different uh, varieties based on the THC to CBD ratios. For example, uh, the legal definition of hemp in the U.S. is any cannabis plant containing up to 0.3% of THC. The number intends to distinguish uh, cannabis with low intoxication potential from varieties containing high THC levels. Commercial marijuana type, um, cannabis usually falls within discrete groups based on THC to CBD ratios, and they are usually uh, have been categorized as either THC dominant, CBD dominant, or balanced THC to CBD, although the vast majority of them are still THC dominant. Uh, the level of other minor cannabinoids uh, additionally has been measured in a limited number of studies. However, a more comprehensive quantification of both major and minor cannabinoids from a large sample representative of commercial cannabis across um, multiple legal markets in the US is much needed. Um, in addition to cannabinoids, um, cannabis also has a diverse class of related compounds known as terpenes, and they are type of secondary metabolite which often play defensive role for the plant they're responsible for the smell and they can be pharmacologically active and may serve as reliable chemotaxonomic markers for classifying cannabis beyond the THC to CBD ratios it has been shown that um, chemical phenotype which is chemotype of plants can be used to classify cannabis into chemical 
chemical varieties, which is chemovars, and distinct chemovars, each with different ratios of cannabinoids and terpenes, are hypothesized to cause distinct effects for human consumers. Um, a variety of studies have looked at the chemical composition of the samples limited to a single geographic location, included measurements of limited number of cannabinoids, or included measurements of terpenes without cannabinoid content. Few studies have investigated the major and minor cannabinoids together with the terpenes, and none have performed a thorough chemotaxonomic analysis on a data set with tens of thousands of samples across several legal cannabis markets in the U.S. Um, mapping the chemical diversity of cannabis consumed by millions of people has important implications for consumer health and safety, um, such as identifying how many chemically distinct types um, we have in legal markets. And um, it has been suggested that multiple compounds produced by cannabis uh, may act in combination um, to produce specific uh, medicinal or psychoactive effects, the so-called entourage effect. Uh, however, there is limited suggestive evidence for such an effect, and uh, including improved patient outcomes in those who use whole plant extracts versus synthetic THC. For example, synthetic THC alone in manufactured products such as Marinol may produce unpleasant effects. Whether or not uh, the ratios of cannabinoids and terpenes are able to consistently yield uh, different subjective effects or therapeutic outcomes is unknown and still a topic of debate. Uh, the combinatorial effects uh, when ingestion of two or more compounds um, happens may be more likely when a drug acts on multiple target systems, as uh, CBD is known to do. Two compounds can also act directly on the same target, either by um, augmenting or antagonizing each other's effect. CBD appears to improve THC elicited side effects. Uh, it acts as a negative allosteric modulator of the CB1 receptor, and THC is a partial agonist. Uh, random, uh, randomized controlled trials observed different effects from both compounds consumed alone versus in combination. These effects depend both on um, the dose and consumer's past experience, suggesting that future studies uh, that are looking for possible THC-CBD combinatorial effects must control for those factors, uh, which may be why previous studies have had conflicting results. Um, carefully controlled in vivo studies are needed to determine whether distinct ratios of compounds have combinatorial effects. Um, a first step toward defining possible uh, ratios to be used in those vivo studies is to quantify the ratios present in commercial cannabis. Doing that will also be important for informing the design of human clinical studies aimed at investigating um, the therapeutic effects of cannabis products. Ideally, these studies will test formulations with comparable cannabinoid and terpene ratios to those that are widely encountered by millions of consumers. Uh, another important reason to map the chemotaxonomy of commercial cannabis is that products are commonly labeled with strain names that are distinct or categories with alleged effects, implying that uh, distinct chemical combinations are consistently linked to those labels. For example, consumers believe that cannabis flower labeled indica are reliably sedating, while flower labeled as sativa provide energizing effects. Cannabis products are aggressively marketed using these labels. Um, Thus, a better understanding of whether those labels have any reliable association uh, with the distinct chemical profiles maybe have um, implications for consumer health and safety, as well as the regulation of cannabis uh, product marketing. <clears throat> 
the lack of um, the standardized regulated naming system has been discussed previously. Uh, various studies, each was limited in different ways, have investigated where these labels capture real chemical variation. For example, cannabinoid and terpene measurements from California samples found limited differences between indica and sativa, with some strain names more consistently associated with specific chemical composition than others. Flower samples from the Netherlands were found to contain specific terpenes more often associated with indica than to sativa samples. Samples from Washington state limited a total THC and CBD content found no differences between indica and sativa with potency variation between certain strain names uh, and cannabinoid samples across the US did not find a clear relationship between strain name and a chemotype, although terpene measurements were not included either. Um, in this study, they conducted the largest chemotaxonomic analysis of commercial cannabis flower to date uh, using samples from cannabis testing labs in six U.S. states. They analyzed both the cannabinoid and terpene content available for these samples together with the common industry labels and popularity metrics associated with them by the consumer-facing cannabis platform we know as Leafly. Um, they defined distinct chemotypes that reliably show up across U.S. and I did, uh, quantified how well the industry labels indica hybrid and sativa to map these chemotypes. They also examined the consistency of strain names across samples from different producers. These results provide new possibilities for systematically categorizing commercial cannabis based on chemistry, the design of preclinical and clinical research experiments, and the regulation of consumer marketing in the legal cannabis industry. And uh, we are going to be going into results. Corey, do you want to do methods first? Yeah, no, definitely. Every paper we've read before was in that order. In this yeah, I know. It, it kind of threw me off a little bit, too, when I was going through and I was trying to find it. And I kept scrolling and scrolling yeah, like, and scrolling. I was like, where, so, where is it? My turn. So, if you guys, if you want an explanation for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So, papers, people don't want to read methods. Like, that's the right. worst part. I'm so, I'm so sorry, Corey, but... That's the worst part of the paper. And most people don't need to read methods unless you're actually going to do a study and you want to follow what they did or unless, you know, this is your jam and you really want to see, like, what statistical, what R package did you use? Like, materials and methods are not really something that people want to read. So a lot of journals have you put it at the end so that you can actually go straight to your results and then discussion. That's interesting. Um, it does then, make sense. Yeah, it does make sense in the context, you know, in how you're supposed to read the paper, but it does make it confusing. So, yes, materials and methods, fix them next. And I'm sorry you get the boring section, Corey. It's funny. <laughs> I, I actually love these sections, though. I think you might both probably be able to tell that, especially with the cultivation ones. And we go through the methods, I get mm -hmm. really excited about how they do you, things. Yeah, you give it a, you give it personality. Oh, uh, it's sure. so cool. I don't know. I just, I'm always excited to know the why. Uh, of these uh, things so this is no exception this one's very interesting for me because i kind of have like a personal beef with leafly because of their misinformation thing so it's exciting that i'm reading a paper that um you know this kind of information is coming from them or based on their partnerships on the actual data that they have instead of marketing write-up so um, i'm excited to give that uh to leafly and give a little bit more kind of weight because i know they do take a little bit of hit for stuff like that there's a lot of data collection stuff i'm not really going to touch on the material and methods section related to the specific figures because 
I definitely do not think that I can convey what they're actually saying <laughs> um, on there. So please, you know, uh, for everyone who's watching live and pays attention to the Telegram channel, et cetera, go through the paper and take a look at those materials and methods, even though they're boring, but they will give you a little bit of insight um, into how they break down those individual figures. Because as we've already, you know, said a couple of times in here, there's a lot of pictures. <laughs> so there's a lot of things uh, happening in here. So to summarize the data analyzed in the paper, I shared by Leafly. Uh, they're considered a technology company in the legal cannabis industry. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Leafly uh, has a variety of data uh, available as part of a data sharing program where university affiliated researchers can access data for research purposes with the intent to publish results in peer reviewed scientific journals. I had no idea about that. So this is why I'm interested to read into them. Uh, the data Leafly made available included laboratory testing data, so cannabinoid and terpene profiles, and I'll chat about that in a second, as well as metrics related to consumer behavior and preferences, including normalized values of the number of unique views to each of the web pages within its online consumer-facing strain database, which I've already spoken about, the consumer ratings and common categorical designations, so uh, indica, hybrid, or sativa, and crowdsource metrics related to the perceived flavors and effects of associated with popular strain names. So from those uh, consumer reviews. So essentially that database that we've seen um, online. For the purposes of this study, they've mainly focused on analyzing laboratory testing data and its relationship with the popular commercial labeling systems. So Leafly has these partnerships uh, with cannabis testing labs across the United States, and each lab consented to allowing researchers to analyze the data, uh, which is awesome. Uh, each laboratory data set consisted of the complete set of cannabinoid and terpene compounds measured by each lab within a given time period between December 2013 and January 2021. The name of each lab is listed below. And each lab has different variations of high-performance liquid chromatography, HPLC, to measure the cannabinoid levels. So we have a lab in Alaska called CanTest. Uh, down in Washington State is Confidence Analytics, uh, Chem History in Oregon, Modern Canna Labs in Florida, and PSI Labs in Michigan, and SC Labs in California are the labs that consented to the study. And uh, Leafly shared a single standardized lab data set composed of cannabis flower samples. This is the cannabis with a capital C that had been tested for cannabinoid or for both cannabinoid and terpene content. The raw acid cannabinoid and terpene measurements had been converted to common units. Uh, and this is, was all anonymized uh, with a producer ID, uh, test date, and a producer given sample name. So... This is the um, what they go into kind of the each testing lab sample here. So uh, Leafly included a strain name that came off of the website um, together with a popular category, Indica, Hybrid, or Sativa, and associated with each strain name. Those strain names from the database were matched to the producer given strain name of each flower sample, example, Blue Dream, and wherever such a match was found using a similar string matching algorithm. So in total, 81.5% of the samples were attached to popular strain names, and 73% were attached 
to an indica hybrid and sativa label with the remainder labeled as unknown. Um, some of the technology used, uh, getting a little nerdy into it, but one of the good old uh, standard programming languages, uh, Python, uh, was used in here. And so they talk about, they get really nerdy about some of these things where they talk about some of the data filtering and how they um, took out outliers. Um, what I want to kind of put across in there is that um, the total number of samples that were dropped from the data set was about 684, uh, which represents 0.75% um, of the raw data set. And so, um, again, there was kind of discussed earlier, of course, uh, which, you know, cannabis material, so shake uh, is kind of what they're talking about here, uh, was not, you know, um, considered uh, biologically impossible uh, in here. So we have that. And then on the terpene side of it, uh, those were THC and CBD samples. On the terpene side of it, there were, um, where was the drop on here? 9% um, um, of the samples uh, didn't have any terpene data. Uh, is the, or sorry, yes, it's representing 9% of the samples were removed, uh, which is 4,234. So there were a few samples that were taken out um, just due to not being, I guess, correctly categorized. Um, Dr. Anna, I think you can, if you want to correct me on that, I'm not sure if you can, but um, I get a little bit nervous in there because they go get, again, they kind of get really nerdy into taking out some of these samples and why they did it. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to make sure that I'm kind of conveyed that um, accordingly. Nope, you're good. I mean, they're, they only have the tests they have, right? And there are some states that don't require terpene analysis, but there are lots of people who submit the samples and they want the additional terpene analysis. So there were 9% of the samples that were in their data set that didn't have any terpene analysis associated, so they had to drop all those. Beautiful. So the as far as THC and CBD chemotypes are concerned and how they classified it, that's something else that I definitely think I should touch on uh, because I think, you know, in general, I think that, you know, most folks know, you know, what THC dominant, CBD dominant or balanced is. But for the purposes of the study, uh, the THC dominant samples are those with a five to one uh, THC to CBD ratio. The CBD dominant samples are those with a one to five, so one THC to five CBD or lower, and then balanced are THC and CBD are in between uh, those values. So I wanted to touch on that as well. Uh, Dr. Anna just mentioned as well, and that's the kind of the cannabinoid and the terpene analysis is not um, required in all of the states. Um, however, they do cover the common cannabinoids and some common terpenes. So uh, as far as cannabinoids are concerned, uh, I think that we're all familiar uh, with THC, CBD, CBG, CBC, CBN, and THCV. And then they go down the terpene wheel, which I'm just going to leave alone <laughs> for the time being. Um, and then I think that really is about it. They Again, they go into some pretty intense statistical uh, things about Welch's T-test. Uh, and I think that's, uh, of course, where I really found out how materials and methods can truly be uh, boring, <laughs> as Dr. Hanna has mentioned. Uh, but yeah, they go into the data analysis of all the figures um, and how they specifically did that. So I'm going to leave that and let uh, everybody just kind of, you know, Tickle your little nerd hearts to death. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, when going through that sort of stuff. So without further ado, I will pass it on through. <laughs> Thanks, Corey. That was awesome. Results. They're, this thing is crazy. Um, it's a lot of figures, which are really cool and really hard to, I don't know, they're so cool. And they're very complex. So I'm sure Dr. Guess- Ann. I just want out. to say that I, well, I talked sure. to Daniela about this paper and she, when they first put it on BioArchive, and she said her exact words were, Anna, the figures are so pretty. Oh, my God, they're so pretty. <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of scatter plots. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, is like she's huge. Her favorite thing to do is make box and whisker plots, and there's no box and whisker plots here. So um, I think oh, yeah. probably... Probably Nick of- was, I think probably Nick was, um, because he works for Lee. I mean, you know, you see this stuff on Leafly, right? It's very colorful. It's mm-hmm. somewhat helpful. Um, but these, these to me say that maybe Nick had a, a large hand in creating these figures. Ooh, you know, they don't have box and whisker plots, but they do have violin plots in figure one, <laughs> which is a new term for me. Okay, results. So let's start with the cannabinoid composition of U.S. commercial cannabis. Most of the samples belonged to the THC-dominant chemotype. There was 96.5% in the aggregate data set. Each individual region, um, which we can see in figure, is that figure two? Yeah. Um, um, a much smaller portion of the samples were classified as CBD-dominant, which is 1.4%, or a balance, 2.2%. Uh, and we can see all the different samples and their cannabinoid compositions on figure one. THC, very dominant in, in that fatty little violin in figure A, part C. There's a lot of, we're looking at a lot of THC dominant, and that's kind of what the market looks like too. So it's pretty pretty good reflection of the reality of the U.S., cannabis industry lots of thc and you know for some reason that's just the what, what's really moving the market even though there's more to it which we will kind of see here um they said the vast majority of variance in cannabinoid profiles is explained by variation among the three most abundant cannabinoids thc cbd cbg and commercial cannabis in the u.s with potential regulatory consequences is the substantial correlation between total THC and CBD levels in CBD-dominant samples. 84.5% of the CBD-dominant samples had total THC levels above 0.3, the threshold used to legally define hemp in the U.S. This indicates that a substantial fraction of CBD-dominant cannabis would not meet the legal definition of hemp in the U.S. I know a lot of farmers are having issues or have had issues, maybe not so much now, but that 0.3% is not very reasonable when it comes to, you know, the hemp industry being that if it goes over that 0.3, like they're saying, um, they have to like destroy that crop, which is unfortunate. So for terpene composition of US commercial cannabis, now we're getting into the terps. On average, the terpenes myrcene, beta caryophyllene, and limonene were present at the highest levels. 
as seen in figure 3a. Um, in most cases, individual terpenes were rarely present at more than 0.5% weight, and most were present at low levels, less than 2%, 0.2%. Excuse me. In the majority of samples, uh, overall total terpene content averaged two percent by weight and displayed a modest but robust positive correlation with total cannabinoid content, suggesting that the pro production of one type of compound doesn't come at the expense of the other. Analyses and we've got uh, strong positive correlations were seen between alpha and beta pinene, which you can see in Figure Three B. Uh, these correlations. Oh, sorry, also um, beta-caryophylline and humulene. So these correlations held for both the aggregate data set and for each individual U.S. state, demonstrating their robustness across regions. Each um, terpene has its distribution laid out in 3A. I'm not too keen on, like, terpenes and kind of what they mean in terms of like cannabinoids and everything, but we're kind of finding that out here. Um, in order to systematically understand relationships between all terpene pairs, they performed hierarchical clustering on all pairwise correlations among terpenes. Basically, they're, yeah, they're cluster. We're trying to categorize kind of these different correlated terpenes. After controlling for multiple comparisons, they observed many robust correlations between terpenes. The data is plotted on figure 4b. Um, so you can kind of, there's a cool, what do you call this, a network diagram kind of showing um, the strongest correlations between terpenes found so in I similar I'm going to jump, jump in super quick here yeah. on that network. Um, it's another cluster analysis, so you can kind of also imagine this as a cloud also of data. So those those circles, those, this is not flat. So um, it, I think probably, I, I hope everybody's been to the Phylos Galaxy. It's a, so you can imagine this whole thing, like you can rotate it around on all axes, mm. and then those lines that join the things together, um, how far apart they are matters and how thick mm -hmm. the lines are matter and how big the circles are matter so the bigger the circle um the the more samples they have that uh belong in that circle the thicker the lines the stronger the relationship between the two um so i just want to jump in and say that cluster Thank analysis with, with the lines that join the clusters cool yeah so basically we're like looking at kind of a, a an interesting way to look at a terpene profile. This diagram provides a more compact picture of terpene co-occurrence and likely reflects the underlying biosynthesis pathways that give rise to these correlations. Because when you can see which terpenes are are connected, must have something to do with that chemotype or chemovarum. Yeah, so basically um, uh, we have okay. like three clusters here. We've got like a terpene, a terpenoline and pinene cluster. We have myrcene that's off to the side. I don't know why, but it's like a uh, there's a myrcene cluster. And then there's your limonene, humulene, periophylline cluster. Um, so yeah. that's their three clusters. And then it goes on to the next figure, which basically shows the same thing. And you were going to talk about that in a sec, so I'll jump out. Yeah, I think they're going to – I feel like they break down the clusters. Maybe I, – I hope I didn't miss that. I was just curious to know why myrcene was so far out there when they said that it was kind of one of the most dominant ones that they had. 
Um, and there's a, c a couple other things that they're talking about um, in correlation with it. It just seems that it was off to this side. I wasn't sure why that was mapped like that. But it does have a thick line. Yeah, for me, I didn't, when I was looking through these figures, the one thing that uh, sh jumped out to me was the correlation between carophylline and humulene. And I didn't really read that I was going through. Maybe I didn't read carefully enough, but... Yeah, that was just interesting when I was going through this figure. It was a little bit different than some of the data I was reading. So maybe I just read it incorrectly, but those are kind of the things that were, um, yeah, Mersine was kind of off to the side when I expected it to be with everything, uh, essentially, or a closer relationship. So it looks like for the, for the humulene and caryophylline, um, it says two cannabis terpenes, oh, sorry, beta-caryophylline and humulene, two cannabis terpenes are co-produced by common enzymes. So that's probably where we're getting these relationships. Not sure about the Mersine, no one. I think figure 5F might answer that question about the Mersine. Cool. We're headed that way soon. Next, THC dominant and high CBD cannabis display distinct levels of terpene diversity. So historically, the major focus of both clandestine and illegal cannabis breeding in the U.S. has been on THC-dominant varieties, which is why they predominate in the commercial marketplace, as seen in Figure 1. It is therefore expected that THC-dominant cultivars will display a more diverse array of terpene profiles than CBD-dominant and balanced THC-CBD cultivars. So we got another analysis to kind of pick that apart. Uh, most of the variants in terpene profiles can be explained with just a few components. To visualize how, how patterns of terpene profile variation map to the major CBD THC chemotypes shown in figure one, they plotted them in PCA scores, aka principal component analysis, along the first three principal components with each sample color coded by chemotype. That's going to be figure five, yeah. You can see which terpene is more correlated to which kind of um, chemotype we're looking at. It's very, it's just a, a nice cluster of colors and circles and triangles. That's fun. Go ahead, Anna. I was going to say, I really wish they used like three different colors. They used blue, like... blue diamonds and then blue triangles and then black yeah. circles. And you can't tell the difference. Like, I wish they had used, like, three completely different colors. Right. Um, so that you would be able to see. Because I, I feel like, I mean, I can see the CBD clusters just because they're black dots. Yeah. But as yeah. far as, like, being able to distinguish the light blue from the dark blue, I mean, there's literally, like, you know, tens of thousands of, of samples that they looked at here. Or maybe this is just the 43,000. Nonetheless. That's a lot of freaking samples, right? And I really mm -hmm. wish they had have used different colors. Or maybe they tried to use different colors and it was just like... Not colorblind friendly. Not Well, maybe they weren't even really showing clusters. I don't know. Yeah, like, it probably just didn't help. <laughs> not visually helpful. <laughs> exactly. Because at but least yeah, if, you, I like, mean, if you like squint, you can kind of see clouds. You know, like yeah. in B, you can see there's like a cloud up near the ter terpinoline, and you can kind of see a cloud over by the myrcene. And then in, in D, you can see definitely a terpinoline cloud, and you can see like a limit. But um, I think maybe, I don't know, like I would have liked to have seen different colors, but 
maybe an actual peer reviewer will ask them for that. Right. Nice. Yeah. So it's really hard to really say much about this, except for if you're interested in knowing which uh, chemotype has which has more of a correlation to a specific terpene, then that is the plot for you. The THC dominant products displayed significantly higher levels of diversity than both the balance THC CBD and CBD dominant products. In particular, a higher proportion of CBD dominant and balanced THC CBD products displayed myrcene dominant terpene profiles compared to THC dominant samples. And that's in 5F. Yeah, it's really cool to kind of like categorize it this way. So like that's kind of, it seems to be that's kind of like where this paper, like almost the utility of it is kind of trying to revolutionize labeling in a way or maybe just kind of give it more of a, I don't know, just more info. <laughs> okay, I'm going to continue. Cluster analysis reveals distinct terpene chemotypes and poor validity of common commercial labels, which kind of is a repetitive theme that whenever we are looking at papers that are kind of verifying labels, commercial products are routinely labeled indica hybrid or sativa. Prevailing folk theories assert that indica products provide sedative sedating effects, sativa energizing, hybrid intermediate. If this were true, we would expect to see a reliable difference between the chemical composition of samples attached to each label. So to test this, they did a silhouette analysis to quantify how well these industry labels capture the observed chemical diversity. They compared this commercial labeling system to labeling the data with simplified chemical designations or each sample's dominant terpene, as well as an unbiased approach using K means clustering. The samples are highly intermingled with no obvious segregation of data points by commercial label. This is reflected in the corresponding silhouette plot, and that's figure six. Uh, the majority of samples have a negative score, indicating that many samples with one label could be easily confused with samples of a different label in terms of terpene profile. In other words, it is likely that a sample with the label indica will have an indistinguishable terpene composition as samples labeled sativa or hybrid. In, in comparison, when samples are labeled by their dominant terpene, there's a better visual separation of data points by their label, figure 6C. These results indicate that even a simplistic labeling system in which THC dominant samples are labeled by their dominant terpene is better at discriminating samples than the industry standard labeling system. Dr. Anna, if you won't want to poke at figure 6, I'm not sure... Basically, we're just saying these labels are poorly aligned to the pattern of phytochemistry. I mean, I yeah. I'm so they in the first one, they're looking. This is a cluster of um, the indica hybrid sativa description, and you can see it's all over the place, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you've got your your sativas and your hybrids clustering together, which makes sense because hybrids are a mix. <laughs> and then, I mean, but I also see like there's a lot more sativa in that top cluster. Again, it's really hard to see, though, because they've got sativas as red and indicas as purple, which are not terribly <laughs> different colors that are showing up. They're kind of showing up as different shades of red, and I am not colorblind. Um, the the things that stick out to me are the, the green from the red and orange and the uh -huh. gray from the red and orange, um, But it, so it's very hard to see that. 
but you can also see in B that there are a lot more hybrids um, in this analysis. There are a lot with no description, and then there's a, a few indicas and a few sativas relative to each other, right? And the next one, they have it clustered by terpenes, and you can pretty well see there they they do cluster. Um, but yeah, you've got, nice. the, uh, I think it's curiopylene and limonene are clustering together on top of each other. You've got pinene and myrcene that cluster on top of each other. And then I think it's terpinoline, limonene. I don't even know. Like, it's hard for me to look at the colors. and. Yeah. It's kind of um, cool because you, you can, like, how they said that, like, myrcene is the more dominant mm -hmm. of all the other ones. You can really see that a lot of the samples in that bottom right on C have yep. mercine. <laughs> yep, and then and then the last couple of figures in this, they've broken it down into these clusters. So, you know, they are There's describing those clusters that have multiple terpenes in them. Um, so cluster one is the orange cluster up top, which is terpenoline and uh, mercine. And then, or right? And then yeah. the uh, purple cluster, cluster one is, Periophylline and limonene, and then the bottom cluster uh, two, cluster two is myrcene and pinene. So really, yeah. they do cluster well when you break it down by terpene uh, combination. The way that they've done it with cluster one being periophylline and limine, uh, cluster two myrcene and pinene, and cluster three is terpenoline and myrcene. Right. I mean, really, they could take out myrcene and say myrcene's everywhere. It's just ignore that because we all know that abundance doesn't equal potency um <laughs> and they could say cluster one is caryophylline and limonene cluster two is pinene and cluster three is um terpenoline we also observed that one cluster the cluster three with the terpenoline and myrcene had somewhat higher total cbg levels compared to the other clusters um, with the median CBG of 0.98% versus 0.65%. This appeared to be due to a modest but significant correlation between total CBG and terpenoline levels. Interesting. More kind of that silhouette analysis and different ways of categorizing in B. And you can see for the clustering a nicer kind of dr anna what would that be on d e and f that kind of graph i can't right now at their i want to call it like a a web but i can't remember what it's called um it's, um oh a my polar God. plot what is it oh yeah polar plots I yeah see polar it. plots nice yeah, yeah um, so excel excel does it um <laughs> it just does it in a different way but yeah okay and yeah this is like a new thing i think this is one of definitely one of things that he does they're kind of cool yeah it's kind of it, i mean it's basically like the, the further it's pointing up to or filling in whatever side of that circle you're seeing is the more dominant yeah so instead of having like bars that show you how much of each thing is it's arranged in a circle and if mm -hmm. it goes all the way out to the edge like in d curiophylline it's all the way out to the edge so it's dominant um, limiting you don't have as much and mercy you don't have as much but they're all present and then so mercy is dominant in e and terpenoline is dominant in f so it's like kind of like a you know just a regular bar graph it, it's just arranged differently in a circle so you can i don't know just that's cool 
whatever people get bored with how figures are normally done i guess i don't know i guess gotta get it polar all right commercial strain names quote unquote strain names display differential levels of chemical consistency to quantify chemical consistency among thc dominant products they compared each product's chemical composition in terms of the 14 major terpenes depicted in figures three to four they did this for all strain names where the underlying data was attached to at least five product IDs, each having five or more samples with that particular strain name to validate whether the strain names attached to more testing data are representative of those encountered by consumers. They plotted the number of products attached to each strain name versus consumer popularity, measured in terms of unique online page views to the consumer cannabis database, Leafly. Uh, They observed a strong positive correlation, indicating that the strain names in the analysis are representative of the names encountered by consumers in commercial settings. Some commercial labels are overrepresented in specific chemically defined clusters. In doing this analysis, they noticed that one cluster, cluster three with the high terpenoline levels, contained a a paucity of products attached to strain names labeled as indica. So to understand whether any of the indica hybrid sativa industry labels were over or underrepresented within any of these clusters, they did another analysis. And for each of the three clusters, they calculated the proportion of products attached to those labels. Each cluster is broken down pretty much into sativa, indica, and hybrid. Lots of hybrid going on, which is kind of expected. That's pretty much it for results. A lot of awesome plots and graphs that you can, if you have a curiosity about strains and their terpene profiles, this is kind of a cool one to look at. Thanks, Casey. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Anna. Thank you, Molly. This is part one of another episode of the Canna Book Club, The Phytochemical Diversity of Commercial Cannabis in the United States by Smith, Vergara, Keegan, and Jacones. Really do appreciate everyone for following through. I hope you've had the time to check out the introduction link there so you can actually go read the paper and follow up with us for part two in our discussion. Please follow us over on YouTube and you can find us on Twitch, Resonate Media. And you can also get in touch with us again on Instagram at Team Resonate You'll be able to see our announcements for our live shows and the other special events that are happening with us here at Resonate Cannabis. Again, always a pleasure, and we will see you all for the next episode, the discussion, part two, coming shortly to Resonate Radio. Thank you, everyone.